Welcome to the Smallholder Food Business Development Institute podcast, episode number 89. And today we are talking about the SOP for inclusive excellence, what it is and how to use it. We'll see you on the inside. Welcome to the Smallholder Food Development Institute podcast, where we serve up truth so that you can build the profitable, sustainable food business you've always dreamed of. Now here's your host, Dr. Michelle Fannin-Steele. Alrighty, my friends. Hello and welcome to episode 89 of the podcast. It's uh, another great day to be around and do the work that we are doing. So as per always, I'm going to be doing um I'm going to be doing the podcast. Today we're talking about the Inclusive Excellence SOP that I um, sent out um, and talk a little bit about um, screwing up <laughs> uh, and what that looks like in a business setting and some of the things I've been thinking out, thinking about because of that. And then uh, I'm going to be going over the SOP itself. Uh, so today you're going to want to take like one of the things that I'm excited about about doing this is not only the opportunity to talk about inclusive excellence, but the opportunity about how it is that we write a standard operating procedure and how it is that we actually go about like making sure our SOPs work. So that's what today's podcast is about. We've got a lot to talk about about that. And so that's going to be super exciting. And then the few other things that I want to uh, I want to point out that if you are interested in a locker, I really need for you to go and get on our get on our mailing list so you can so like you can get in touch with me. We are in we are in you know scaling up production. Um, some really exciting things are happening. Good, um, you're going to be getting some announcements later in the summer of um, some really pretty incredible things going on. Um, but if you are at all thinking about doing this, now is the time to get in touch with us. So just DM me, I will send you the link for uh, getting um, uh, getting in touch with us and like booking a call so that we can design your locker. We have this really cool design um, that we have, that we are debuting that's actually red meat and poultry uh, slaughter for uh, small farms. And it's gonna completely revolutionize how we do small farm on farm processing, um, and uh, it's um, two orders of magnitude cheaper than the last um, than the last one I looked at. <laughs> you know, so under a million dollars, guys. Um, for all, I, and I mean like all in under a million dollars, which is pretty incredible. So if you're interested in that, you know where to find me. I'm over on the proofing box. You can DM me. You can find Dirgo Food Safety on Facebook sfbdi.com. Like I'm around, y'all know where I am. Uh, so I want to point that out. And then I also want to um, talk to you if you are um, thinking about doing this, but you don't know if you're quite ready yet and you want to get um, you want to get some coaching and start learning HACCP or preventive controls or whatever, you can always come into the power group. Um, and then we give you like 50% of your power group investment back when you sign on for the locker. Okay. So that's, you know, the power group is 5k for 90 days and we do amazing, amazing work. Um, life-changing work. I love hearing from my power group members about, you know, how coaching changed their lives this week, uh, because that's, 
that's really, you know, like, honestly, we're really going to get uh, the revolution that we want in local agriculture when we think different thoughts. <laughs> and thinking different thoughts is a process. Guys, it's a process of coaching. I mean, you know, it, nobody would go, you know, go to NASCAR or go play professional tennis or go play, you know, bowl professionally, for heaven's sakes, without a coach and so with Dirigo food safety like you get the coaching and you get the consulting to go with it i'm um, you know there there's almost nobody out there in the universe that can do the number of things i can do in food safety and you get all of that and this smiling face too like what more could you want so and if you're not quite there yet of course come join us on the proofing box if you're listening to this as opposed to listening to the live um, and as always um, i'm a veteran and if you're a veteran talk to me because the veterans product is pay what you think it's worth um, and that's amazing too and i love bringing veterans into the conversation so that we can go out and change the world <laughs> so that's what it is all about it is really all about the possibility that revolutionizing local agriculture re-regionalizing food production is going to give us some time so that's pretty amazing and i'm super glad that you are all joining us uh for that and so that brings us to how we're actually going to revolutionize local agriculture. And we're going to do it by running sustainable, profitable businesses that drive waste out of the system. Okay. I come to everything this way, whether it's inclusive excellence or uh, approved supplier programs or HESIT planning, you know, like the whole idea is, is that we do business best practices we um, show up to the process and we deal with discomfort. And you're gonna, you know, it was interesting. I was, I've been talking with a lot of people about white fragility and dealing with a lot of people who have white fragility. And I went, I decided that, you know, and you know, everybody's like reading books on anti-racism and that's all really good. And I've, I've read a lot of them. Um, I decided I'm gonna read, um, I'm gonna read memoir, um, by people by you know like um by authors of color uh instead of white people writing about anti-racism not that i mean robin donovan is amazing and white fragility is a great book there are other great books out there um but i want to read i want to read memoirs and, and first person accounts of what it's like to grow up black in america and i've read some really really good ones um so the and and what and the reason and the reason I bring this up is is because when we start approaching our work, all of us we want to know how to do the how, which I totally get, right? Um, but the way we approach everything around here is by deciding what result we want to get, managing our minds, and then deciding the how. And I found it incredibly fascinating when I was doing work with other white women around white fragility this week. Looking and then I was also looking at um, I just picked up a book on anxiety and how the brain works and things like that and I was fascinated to read some of the new research out there about how anxiety is organized in our brain. Okay. And we are if you don't know this living in an epidemic of anxiety. Okay, we have an epidemic that we can see right now in coronavirus. We have an epidemic 
of racism in our system and we have an epidemic of anxiety. These are all public health problems, okay? And have public health manifestations. And any of y'all that have worked with like, um, like almost any Gen Zer in a close personal way or parenting a Gen Zer, uh, understand the sheer level of anxiety that they have. And I was talking with the president of my college, Paula Johnson, who's a, um, she's a medical doctor. I'm pretty sure she has her PhD, but she does public health cardiology. Um, and she ran like some gigantic research institution at Harvard before she moved over to Wellesley. And we were talking about anxiety as a public health problem. In, in the same way that coronavirus is public health problem and race and, and then racism, she addresses racism as a, as a public health problem because there are um, there are measurable effects on black bodies of racism. Um, it is a it's literally a public health problem. Right. And so. But then I bring my economics training to it. And so I trained in econ uh, with a guy named Chip Case, who many of you may be familiar with from the Case-Shiller Index, which kind of tracks housing prices. So it was Chip Case from Wellesley and Robert Schiller from, um, from Yale. And they won, a, they won a, a, a Nobel in economics for their work. And what I have been studying since I was in college was how do like individual decisions and the effects of individual decisions on the larger whole? Okay, you, I can pretty much sum up everything I have ever done in my life to be a study of that in one way, shape, or form. And I was reading this book on anxiety, and the and what was super interesting and how this ties in is that the, the research now really, really shows the steps associated with organizing anxiety in our brain. Okay, so anxiety is something that happens in our brain. And what happens is, is we get information from the outside world. Okay, we get information from our five senses. We get information from our own body um, in varying and assorted ways. And all of that information comes in, it comes into a section of our brain called the thalamus which is the most primitive part of the forebrain of, of us, right? And then from the thalamus, those, um, that information can either go up to our cortex, okay, which is, you know, there are different parts of our cortex, or it can go to our amygdala. And the amygdala is the emotional center of the brain. Amygdala is, there are two amygdala, one on either side of the brain. Uh, it's Greek for almond. You've probably heard me talk about it before. And it's in the amygdala where we organize emotions and then send information to the rest of our body to react to emotions. Okay. And I was thinking about this in terms of um, how, not only how do we deal with anxiety, but in terms of how we learn to deal with the world around us and how we learn to deal with other races. Because what happens is, is that in order for um, anxiety to be present, only the only thing that happen, has to happen is, is you have to have a scary experience alongside another scary experience. So if you're a kid, like the example they give is that, you know, a kid is running trips and falls, but he's running for his teddy bear. 
and all of a sudden he's afraid of his teddy bear. Or you're in a car accident, you were in the passenger seat of the car, and all of a sudden you're completely afraid of being a passenger in a car, right? And so in your amygdala specifically, there doesn't have to be any logic tying two events together and you will still feel fear because of something that happens. Now, we can do one of two things about this. We can either go diving back into our past and figure that out, and they, that may be a modality of therapy that's very useful for people. Or we can say, huh, that's super interesting. When I have a fear reaction, sometimes it's not always logical. And I think that's what happens with a lot of white people when it comes to understanding our interactions with, um, with with our colleagues of color. Honestly, I think that there are many of us who have been trained over the course of our lifetimes because of the because of the air we breathe here in the in the United States um, to have negative associations. And there's tons of research around this that we have to overcome, okay, in order to do the anti-racism work that we are called to do. But one of the problems is, is that there are lots of pinheaded academic people, of which I kind of include myself, who are like, well, you can just think different thoughts. But I want to tell you, if you have a thalamus, and you do, and your thalamus receives information, it has two pathways for it to go to. It can either go straight to your cerebral cortex, or it can go straight to your amygdala. All right. And I think that there are for a lot of people where... The fear associated with losing our privileged place in society doesn't have any rational component to it. And it's because it's going straight back to the amygdala from the thalamus. And it is not going through your cerebral cortex and then going to the amygdala to get organized into emotions, right? And so what does that actually mean? Well, a lot of that means is that honestly, we have to do operant conditioning as or clicker training, as we say. And, and reassociate at a very deep level that, you know, what it, what it means to have positive race relations on a personal, personal basis, uh, okay? And a lot of that uses your cerebral cortex to recognize when you are not thinking in a positive way around people of color. And you may not recognize that immediately, but you can if you apply yourself to thinking about it. And for those of us who are trying to create anti-fragility around racism, and there are me and several other colleagues who are working on this, that's one of the ways to do it, is to recognize when you have racist thoughts and don't resist them, acknowledge that they are there, and recognize that it's a pattern that was laid down a long, long time ago, okay? and that nothing is going wrong here, you're not gonna act on them because you know you're not gonna act on them, right? And you can recondition those through operant reconditioning, which is really not all that complicated. Start reading books by black authors, guys. <laughs> Have a good time reading books by black authors. Listen to fun black podcasts. Expose yourself to, um, expose yourself to, to other cultures and things like that in ways that, um, that, that you can learn to feel safe around people who you didn't know you didn't feel safe around. Okay. Nobody's blaming you and it's, and, and you can, you know, like you can totally do this work, but this is why it's uh, super important for white folks to like start centering the black conversation because it literally normalizes uh, creating 
uh, breaking the echo chamber of being white-centeredness, white, white okay? And it is in that vein that I wrote this standard operating procedure, okay? The inclusive excellence concept, which I talked about last week, okay, which is the idea that we have, um, we have um, ways to include diversity in our, um, in our work uh, that centers on creating the possibility for everybody to be who the universe is calling them to be. Um, and then understanding the tendency of agent groups, and go back and listen to the podcast so you can understand what I'm talking about, agent groups to target target groups, okay? And how do we upend that? Well, one of the ways that we upend it is by deciding that we are going to, okay, and being in a mindset that inclusive excellence is a standard operating procedure like any other standard operating procedure in your facility. You can do this work, you can verify this work, you can validate this work, um, and like any other SOP, <laughs> okay? And so what I wanna do today then is, is I wanna go through the standard operating procedure and it's available here on the proofing box and I'm gonna do a lot of reading of the standard operating procedure, okay? And we're gonna then talk about each different section, okay? And I'm gonna teach you how to write a standard operating procedure at the same time. All right, so uh, starting at the top, we always sign in our, our standard operating procedures, okay? And you can see all of that document numbers if you're getting an, uh, an ISO audit, then when did you revise it or implement it or all that sort of stuff, okay? All of that is part of document management and you can see that up at the top, that's the table that's up at the top of the Inclusive Excellence SOP. Okay, then uh, the next thing that we write, we write the scope. So this is what does this standard operating procedure do? Like, why are we writing it? Hopefully we write this in real language. Okay, uh, so this SOP is written to create action around the principle of inclusive excellence. As a company, we believe the best ideas and the best solutions draw on a range of voices, perspectives, and experiences. We are dedicated to assuring that all of our stakeholders have an equal opportunity to flourish no matter their race, ethnicity, religion, nationality, physical ability, or any other category that can be used to divide people. So that's the scope of the SOP. I think of that anybody reading this SOP could understand the intent behind the SOP and that's what's really um, what it is really written for, okay, is to, to understand the intent behind the SOP. Then we have the purpose. The purpose of an SOP as I write them is to what standard is this written? Okay, and so some of you are going to have SQF standards that things are written to, some are gonna have um, USDA standards, FDA standards, whatever it is. I wrote here, this SOP is written in conformance with, conformance with business best practices. All right, and then it says requirements. Requirements are what do you need to execute this SOP besides a pen, a paper, and your brain? Okay, so um, there are no additional requirements for this SOP. That's not true in other SOPs, as you can imagine. Every SOP has to have responsibilities assigned to it. Um, okay, so the way I wrote this is, is it's the responsibility of the CEO to ensure that this SOP is in place in both spirit and letter. It's the responsibility of team leaders to ensure that the SOP is in place and functioning. It's the responsibility of all employees and contractors to read, understand, and enact the spirit and the letter of this SOP. 
This SOP will be reviewed by the human resources team quarterly until verification and audit procedures are developed. Okay, so not 100% sure really how we're going to audit this, um, but we will figure it out and I will probably have updated uh, podcasts around how that actually happens. I put in human resources. It doesn't necessarily have to be human resources. In my company, we call the function the S1 because I came from the army and this is an S1 function. <laughs> All right, S1 is, is, is human resources, but it's a little, it's, it's leadership around human resources and that, and that sort of thing. So, um, but I'm just using human resources as the default because probably it's a language a lot of you are going to understand. So, okay, so verification and validation. Did we do what we said we were going to do and is it helpful? The human resources team leader will watch trained employees implement the SOP. We will know the step improves diversity and inclusiveness by a review with paid stakeholders of color and or affected group members of protected categories. Okay, so we um, pay people to help us understand how we're doing diversity and inclusion. All right, we pay outside people to do it because one of the things that ends up happening, um, and there was, a, there was an article that went around on Facebook uh, this week talking about in the Forbes 100, how many, how many um, people of color are in um, at the C-suite level uh, of Fortune 100 companies and they listed all of them and almost every single one was in the C-suite around diversity and inclusion. Um, and I don't want to say that's bad, but why aren't they in there around operations? Why aren't they in there around marketing? Why aren't, you know, like, so just because you have a person of color working for you doesn't mean they want to do diversity and inclusion work um, or that they're trained to do diversity and inclusion work. Some of them just want to show up to work and go to work. Okay. Corrective actions program, uh, the CEO will assess procedures and implement a car as needed for failure to comply. So we're going to go over the corrective action record that I wrote. What are the documents generated? Human resources, team meeting minutes, verification documentation, incident reporting form, um, and a car for non-food safety related matters. Okay, so we have incident reporting forms. Um, that are associated with this SOP, and then the corrective action, the CAR, um, is actually a separate document. All right, so that's the that's how we set up all of our standard operating procedures here at Jergo Food Safety, and that gets us that creates the conditions for creating a successful SOP that'll actually be followed. Okay, so then what I did, and I'm not going to go through here and read the whole SOP for you because you can come in here and you can read it, um, but I want to talk a little bit about what the procedure is um, associated with putting the uh, SOP in place, okay? And I'm just going to read you that part of it. Equity and inclusion stems from a set of leadership practices that, when combined, decrease the likelihood of incidences of injustice in our work environment. These controls include diversity and inclusion, leadership practices, training practices, as well as monitoring and reporting. Okay? So what are those practices? So we have, so we're just going to go down the line, right? So we have leadership practices talking about developing a culture of belonging by including people, right? Developing diversity and inclusion language and integrated into the business goals. 
Like guys, a lot of y'all have different languages spoken on your production floor. Are you including diversity and inclusion language in the language the people read and speak? This is incredibly important, especially if you're SQF audited or BRC audited. Okay, another leadership practice is coaching people and coaching team members from where they are in racial and cultural issues. And that is the labor of trained, probably white people, um, and trained other diversity and inclusion experts and the HR coaches, okay? Um, we're gonna create and implement equity and inclusion for job operational functions. So this is equity and inclusion is part of your operational function of your job. It is not an add-on any more than sanitation is an add-on to a food safety practice. I mean, for heaven's sakes, you would never say food, like sanitation is an add-on. Well, neither is equity and inclusion. Okay, so um, then um, the leadership will utilize the proving box methodology. What's the result we are looking for? What's the mindset? What's the how in order to do, in order to, to dive in and be really specific about what we're doing about equity and inclusion. Okay, we then another leadership practice is to identify and evaluate what everybody else is doing. Does the USDA have a program that seems really good? Does the FDA, does, you know, another company talk to other people so that we can develop these best practices in food? All right, so that's leadership. Next, we have training. So it's incredibly important to understand that in order to do this work well, you need training. Most of y'all do not have that training on staff, okay? And you're going to have to hire that training out. I hire that training out, right? Um, and so it's, I mean, just get, go get trained. There's tons of training. And if you need a training, um, if you need somebody who will come in and do assessments and training, I have people for that, okay? Um, and I want to point out that human, one of the things I wrote in here is human resources personnel is not assumed to be equipped to be able to handle these conversations without training. Human resources personnel will be identified and provided with ongoing continuing education uh, to identify um, support and needs. Uh, what needs for leading on this SOP. Okay, so don't just assume that's because somebody works in HR, they know what the heck they're doing with diversity because they really, really don't. There was, uh, there was a diversity leader that had a huge number of HR complaints against her, <laughs> okay? So we're gonna train people, okay? And then of course there's monitoring and reporting. So we institute leadership practices and then we train. This should sound familiar, guys. And then we monitor and report, okay? So monitoring and reporting looks like having forms that are reported that can be reported um, that are available, like in, I think I said available in the locker rooms. Um, all employees are gonna get a copy of the complaint report during onboarding. And they get turned into human resources, who's then gonna review them for completeness and understanding. And then we institute incidents investigation and incidents reporting, okay? And that kicks us over to the corrective action record for non-food safety related matters, which is what I wrote for this. And as I was, as I was, 
so let's get back to the corrective action report. So this is a corrective action report for non-food safety related incidences. And as I was writing this, I realized that probably a lot of you might need this type of corrective action report um, because we are, because there are a lot of things that happen at work that have nothing to do with food safety, you know? Um, and I think that this is one of those things that if we just broadened corrective actions to for a whole lot of other things, we could learn a lot more about our businesses and run significantly better businesses. Okay, so when we write a corrective action, we always do it the same way. We clearly state the problem or the weakness, including the root cause. And we fill this section out by trained individuals using validated benchmarked methodologies. Okay, what does that mean? That means that you have to be trained like... The worst thing that can happen, especially when it comes to inclusive accidents, is that you get a, a clueless white person filling out a corrective action after an incident report where they don't believe any of this happened or that it's a big deal. Okay, so let's not have that. Okay, it's the same thing if you were filling out an OSHA report, you know, if like, I don't know, if a pallet fell on somebody and somebody was filling out an incident report and then nobody believes them that it was a problem. Like that's not how we do OSHA reports and that's not how we're gonna do inclusive excellence reports, okay? And so then you do a root cause analysis to find the problem, you know, there was a rate, the, and, and, and here's a great place which to start is the problem, is the problem that a racial, you know, harassment incident was reported or is the problem that there is um, there there is bullying going on on the floor of your plant? Okay, so that language matters. What's happening? The language around asking what the heck is happening is very important. What's the effect? Also incredibly important. And then what should be happening? So you can see why you need to be super trained in order for this to actually work, right? And so then the question is, is how can it be fixed? What are we gonna do to make sure that this is, to make sure that this is fixed, all right? Who's gonna be responsible? How are they gonna be trained? How are issues gonna be reported? What are you going to, what are then, what are the solutions, okay, that are going to come about? So what can reasonably be accomplished and what other SOPs are affected in what you are doing? Oh. All right. Should one person solely be accountable? Um, is there, is like, are multiple people going to be accountable? If you have a big racial issue going on, it's probably going to be multiple people accountable, okay? When will the issues be brought back into control and why? And what's your reasoning behind your timeline? Okay. Um, what sort of supporting documentation are you going to need? And then what happened that the, that, that the inclusive excellence SOP was broken? The part where we get to be free of bullying and um, and, and harassment at work, like what the heck happened? Where was the breakdown and how many SOPs need to be fixed and when are you gonna bring them back under control and what are you gonna do to prevent it in the future, okay? Then you're gonna ask, are all parties safe to resume work? 
what steps, if any, are required to ensure that safety measures are in place and applied? Uh, okay, so clearly you thought you had safety measures beforehand, and maybe you did, and maybe you didn't. And, you know, was somebody just ignoring the fact that we don't bully at work? Uh, um, maybe. Okay, so where was training? Where was, like, something, if when one of these incidents happens, uh, it's training, it's leadership, it's hiring, it's all these different sorts of things. How are you going to fix that in the work environment? Are personnel or equipment changes re um, required? What are they and by when will they be changed? Does the SOP, which SOPs need to be changed or modified? Okay. That's a corrective action report. That's how we go through, go through and answer all of those questions. Okay. And that's how you are going to figure out how to create the, um, how to create the, the change that you need to create in order to have a workplace of inclusive excellence. Alrighty. It doesn't have to be complicated if you don't want it to. And as part of my ongoing, so like one of the things that I put in this SOP is that we'll have monthly trainings on inclusive excellence and racial inclusion and talking about all of this sort of stuff. I am going to include that in the podcast, okay? And so I think, I guess it's the, we'll just do it again in a month. In the third week of the month, we'll be talking about um, equity and inclusion on the podcast and what does that look like and be delivering training and thinking and um, so that you can keep your training ongoing. Okay, so I am awfully sorry that um, I had to do this in two uh, bits, but you know, there, because and then this gets me to the email from last week. So we had a we had a miscommunication on our email, and I had my Friday email fire off before it was ready, and I I wrote a different email. I didn't see it in the system, and so all y'all got two emails yesterday. One of them which said MTP to provide content. So hi, I'm MTP. Um, and then clearly we sent out an updated one. So sorry about jamming your inbox like that, but. These things happen. Like it's super important to understand that we're all out there and most of us are trying to do our best and to have a little grace for yourself. Um, alrighty. And so that's what I got for you. I hope you guys ha all have a really, really excellent week. Um, we are going to be in with, I forget who's on the interview for next week, but I know we're doing an interview for next week. So um, if you are interested, actually, I will say this, if you're interested in coming on the podcast and talking, um, talking about your business and how you grew, I would love to, you know, um, send an email to Pam at DirigoFoodSafety.com and come on to the podcast. Like I love talking about pe to, to people and talking about business because it's super, super fun. All right. I love you all. You're completely amazing. And I will talk with you all soon. Bye, guys. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast. Be sure to join us in the Proofing Box, a private Facebook page for food producers filled with valuable information and technical tips. Grow your business by learning from people just like you, all under the guidance of a food safety expert.